Welcome back. I'm Jenny Fielding, and this is Techstars IoT. Hi, I'm Jenny Fielding, Managing Director of Techstars IoT. In our recording studio today, we have Jenny Lawton, the COO of Techstars. Jenny was the CEO of MakerBot previously, as well as the COO at LittleBits, and now she's with us at Techstars. So welcome, Jenny. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into, you know, excited about and into making products. Oh, my background is varied. So I have a degree in applied math. And when I left college, I wanted to do something in the digital space. It was really, really early days in the digital space. I couldn't get a job as a math major. So I ended up working uh, as a secretary to a secretary in a consulting engineering firm. And uh, I sort of moved on up into a couple of other companies, but I hit upon working at MIT Lincoln Laboratory, where I was going to run the real-time systems for a radar project. It took so long to get my security clearance that I learned how to write code in the meantime. So um, I ended up writing code (laughs) for... You kept busy. I kept busy. I I wrote real-time code for a stealth radar system. And that's sort of what what got me engaged in the the technology space. And then after that, where did it take you? After that, I got tired of working for the government and black projects, and I went to work for a company called uh, Stardent Computer, which was started by Bill Paduska. In the olden days, you would have known who Bill was. He started Prime and Apollo, who were really early, early day computer companies. Stardent made uh, high-end graphics workstations, precursor to SGI and Sun. A really exciting company. It was the first entrepreneurial company that I worked for. And it went under on Halloween 1991, and everyone wanted me to work for them, so I decided to start my own company uh, to go work for all the spinoff companies. And that's where I got bit by the entrepreneurial bug, really. That's awesome. And what was that company? What were you guys doing? My company was called NetDaemons Associates, and uh, we provided outsourced system and network administration services to people. We originally were all Unix-based, which uh, NetDaemons is a play on Daemon is a process that keeps things working on a Unix system. So we thought that we were awfully smart naming ourselves that. And we really ended up being a TCP IP-based consulting firm. We did a lot of early state. The internet happened right at the time that we happened. So we got to do a lot of work bringing the internet into schools, bringing the internet into communities, bringing the internet out to the public, working with uh, NearNet and some of the the government-funded networking companies to to bring the internet online and did a lot of the early stage websites, accidentally owned all the code to what is now Monster because we did all of their backend work for the first three years. And when they went to sell, they they came to us and said, like, holy crap, you own all of our code. So we had to give it back to them. So really interesting times. So how did you make the flip from software to hardware? The flip from software to hardware is way after that. So I sold my company to a big web hosting company, bought a lot of companies along the way there. It was all in the hosting space. And after that, I worked as an EIR for Brad Feld at SoftBank. And I left that to uh, own a bookstore and cafe for about eight years. So it was really accidental that I came into the hardware space. I was working for a solar company. I wasn't happy with with what I was doing. I needed a new job and I, I needed something interesting. And I called Brad and said, like, I need something really cool to do. And he's like, oh, you should go talk to Bree at, at MakerBot. You should go visit, at least go visit the Bot Cave. It's really cool. They make 3D printers. And I had no idea what a 3D printer was. Wow. I mean, I've been running a coffee shop for most <laughs> for the last eight years. 
And I went to Brooklyn. It was the first time I'd been to Brooklyn, which is sort of embarrassing because I'd lived in Greenwich for 12 years or 10 years. I walked in and was immediately just mesmerized by the 3D printers and begged Bree to, to hire me. Whatever job it was, it was one of those cases where whatever the seat was on the rocket ship, I was taking it. And so that's really where I came into the, into the hardware world. That's awesome. And so where did it evolve after that? So obviously fell in love with it. (laughs) It's interesting. I mean, back in the back in the days when I wanted to be a digital engineer is really in the hardware space. So I spent my time in college playing with microprocessors. When I was working in radar, you're always working with hardware. All the coding work that I did was really low level. It's really today would be looked at as firmware. So I was always playing with hardware and flipping bits. And that that's really what I really like getting down to that level. So for MakerBot, it really I started as the Head of people, I think head of people, which Bree used to describe as HR++, which really like what he had brought me in to do was to, to help him grow the business. And from MakerBot, we went to raise a round and uh, we ended up selling the company instead. And uh, we built a factory. We did all sorts of interesting things. So after that, I went to work at Little Bits, partly because of the hardware background that I had, that I picked up uh, along the way. So... Just focusing on 3D printing for a little bit, like what did you see in that that was so exciting about, you know, bringing this kind of creativity to life or, you know, what was it about the actual physical product that was exciting? So when I think about 3D printing and what about that experience really was interesting to me is it reminds me of at college, I went to Union College and we had a set of, I didn't start out in college as an applied math major, I started out as a biology major, I was going to be a doctor. And uh, I failed chemistry hard, and uh, there was no way I was going to take it again. So I did the next easiest thing, which was to be a math major. But I had a really hard time with calculus and understanding how the math looked. And we had a set of string models that you could see, you could see how math looked. And it really transformed my ability to be able to do math and to be able to look at how a mathematical formula became a physical thing. And that was one of the things that immediately amazed me about 3D printing was you could look at something in 2D or you could look at a 3D model and then you could actually physically make it. And you could see how it was constructed and put together. And it answered a lot of questions. I just Once you play with a 3D printer, your mind doesn't think the same again. That's interesting. I'm also a um, a visual learner, so I can't understand the spelling of a word really until I see it written, you know, for a longer word. That is <laughs> right. You know, I haven't really thought of that in terms of science or whatnot, but I definitely know I'm a visual learner. So I wonder how 3D printing could fit into that. Oh, it's amazing when you look at my kids went to Montessori school and you look at the whole manipulative side of teaching. Uh, 3D printing is just amazing for that, like the ability to imagine something and then make it is really transformational. So where do you see 3D printing in the next five years? Like what are some of the most, you know, interesting applications that you think are going to come out of it? There's a lot of interesting work that's being done in 3D printing that's around materials. And I think that when the material space evolves, then what you can do with 3D printing will evolve. And at the same time, when the tools evolve so that you can make a 3D model as it should be versus a, a translation from 2D to 3D, then the world will also change. So in the materials space, you should be able to print medicine. You should be able to print food. All of these things you can kind of do today, but really drilling in to be able to, to do that. You should be able to print 
screws. You should be able to print washers. You should be able to to print things that you need one of. I think it's an awesome just-in-time inventory tool for, for things that don't take a long time to make. So I envision people being able to make a key to be able to make a missing part for their for machine instead of you going to Ikea and, and waiting for those little annoying things that they make there that you put in between the shelves, you'd be able to, to just go and download the SDL and make one in, in a few minutes. So I think that on the practical side, I think that that's one thing. Being able to prototype something is, is obviously something that, that people are already doing. The prosthetics market is going to be continue, I think, to evolve in terms of what you can do with 3D printing, casting, and new casts in the medical market. I think that there's a lot that can be done there. Almost anything that, that has a three-dimensional model that doesn't that's not huge, I think is is highly applicable to being able to be consumerized in, in 3D printing. As you know, we have a company, Mosaic Manufacturing, going through the program and they're doing multi-material 3D printing and have a larger vision around kind of a software ecosystem. So that must bring back some interesting memories of, um, <laughs> of, of MakerBot and, and the journey. But I, you know, I agree with you that you know, we're just at the beginning of that journey. It seems like in terms of investors or in the investing appetite, like people were pretty excited about 3D printing a few years ago and then kind of took a dip. And now recently I read an article that, you know, it's kind of back. So, you know, where do you see that kind of ups and downs in terms of advanced manufacturing being a trending topic within the venture world? 3D printing has been around for 30 years. It's not a new technology. You know, bringing it out to the consumer is a new concept. I always made the argument at MakerBot that this is a 15 to 20 year trend. It's not a, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. For one, 3D printers need to go a full cycle with a kid going into kindergarten with a 3D printer coming out of high school, having used a 3D printer as a tool for learning all the way through, going to college and using it in college and then coming out and it's an implied tool in their life in terms of what they're doing. So that's where I think you have to get to at least a 15 year cycle for that to happen. That's twice a normal length of a VC fund. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the problems. So, you know, when you look at where the dip is, the dip was sort of, you know, five years into that, that adoption cycle. The interest died down, and now, now there's a new investment cycle. But the cycles continued while the dip was there. So, you know, there's probably going to be another rise and another dip before it comes full cycle. I wonder, though, if some of the dip is that most of the utility on the consumer side seemed to be around printing trinkets. And how that became, you know, whether it was from, you know, your MakerBot or whatever printer that wasn't super expensive. And that now that we're talking about things like in the health space and things that are more impactful, if that'll change. I think it'll change. I mean, I think that you could look at it and say that that what people were making were, were trinkets on the mass market side, you know, on the consumer side. But secretly, 3D printing was being brought into the education system. And so in that time period now, you've got kids going to college with 3D printers. You've got kids going to college with laser printers. You've got kids going to college now with fab labs and maker spaces, and they're taking classes where it's a part of what they do. So yeah, now they're coming out with medical devices. Now they're coming out with new ways to, to think and do things. So you're starting to see, like, while, while it just looked like trinkets were being made, actually there's a whole learning process and a whole learning system that was being changed and impacted by a new tool. And I really think that that's what was happening more than trinkets were, were the only thing that people were making. At the same time, the big 3D printing companies 
had to deal with the fact that the consumer 3D printer companies were forcing a change in materials. Prior to that, the big 3D printer companies were able to just say, I'm sorry, this is the only material available. And that's not the case anymore. So now you can 3D print the electronics for a drone. That's a completely changed market because you can use conductive filament now. Where do you see China playing into all of this? in terms of, you know, whether it's distribution or, you know, having Chinese products become leaders in 3D printing? Do you have a point of view on that? (laughs) Yeah, the biggest competitor crusher in the 3D printing space is a Chinese company. And they own the entire supply chain and they can can crush the market pricing-wise. A lot of the consumer 3D printers are all knockoffs of the other. So it's uh, anything in the FDM space is about the same as all the other 3D printers. China's huge. They're going to invest a massive amount of money into 3D printing. They're going to 3D print houses. They're going to 3D print products. And they, they're going to probably be a big push into making this a consumer, a consumer product. I'm ready for my 3D printed autonomous car. <laughs> There's a lot of car parts that are that are 3D printed. You know, look at what GE. I think GE is one of the leaders in this in this space of very thoughtful, creative use of 3D printing. But they are 3D printing, you know, airplane parts, and that they're they're 3D printing parts that couldn't be made any other way at this point. 3D printing is not just making plastic trinkets; it's making metal jet parts. Yeah, and I think my mind was really open to that working with GE, who's one of our corporate partners here at Techstars IoT, and that their advanced manufacturing group is really focusing on such incredible vision and such incredible products, you know, transforming factories and transforming, you know, how we think about that. So pretty exciting. So now you're at Techstars, so you don't get to play with a physical product except people, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us uh, what's exciting about being at Techstars for you now. I think one of the coolest parts about being at Techstars, and this will sound sort of goofy, but I think I love the fact that what I used to do on the side or in my extra hours, little bits at MakerBot is now a part of my job. So being able to mentor and, and advise and be a part of and see what's happening in the entrepreneurial ecosystem is my job. In fact, it's my job to make sure that we do a really awesome job at that. So that's a really cool part of my job. It is one of the smartest group of people I've worked with, with a huge passion play. And there's just, it's awesome to work for a company that that has strong values. The concept of give first is really inspiring. And we're changing the way the world works. I mean, I used to say that at MakerBot, that we were changing the way the world works as well. But we're changing the way the world works in a very different way. We're giving people different opportunities in terms of how to grow and learn and we're changing economies and we're changing the way the companies work and the way the world works. It's really awesome. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. So I think we'll end on that note. So thank you, Jenny. You've been a treasured mentor at Techstars over the years. And now we have you as our COO. So we're super lucky. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Techstars IoT here at Rise New York. Thanks again for joining me for Techstars IoT and stay tuned for next week and our next episode.